1: Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. You asked me what it felt like. How would you feel if someone asked you to participate when they gave birth to a child? That's what it feels like.
2: Ahoy, ahoy, and welcome to Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions from History Hit with me, Dallas Campbell. This episode is not really the story of an invention, I suppose. Invention, I guess, is the wrong word to use when we're talking about something that's, well, it's really so fundamental to what it is to be human. This is the story of how a group of deaf Nicaraguan children who had no language at all came together and gave birth to one. They weren't taught it. They didn't copy another language. They had no knowledge of any other language signed or spoken to base theirs on. They were starting very much from scratch. Today's guest was there to witness and document this happening. Judy Shepard Kegel is a professor of linguistics who specialises in sign languages. And at the time of the story is set, in the mid-80s, Judy had just completed her PhD. Out of the blue, she was invited down to Nicaragua's recently established school for deaf children, where they'd noticed something strange happening. And what she saw amazed her. A new language, sign language... Emerging out of thin air. As we were recording this, actually, Judy and I realised there were lots of films that have taken this idea and made stories out of it. So, Filmbus might like to keep an ear out for all the films that Judy and I managed to reference along the way in this one. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on Patented. I've done a terrible thing. I googled you... And then I went down a massive rabbit hole of linguistic language theory.
1: Yeah, that's true. And it's
2: deep. And I didn't realize how deep it went.
1: And actually, (laughs) if you Google the
2: origins of human language, there's like a a gazillion theories (laughs) and ideas. I don't want to go too deep into those because I want to talk very specifically about sign language. And actually, Freddie, my producer, he's like, for God's sake, Dallas, make sure you leave time to talk about Nicaraguan sign language. Right. Which is an incredible story before we get onto that. But it is the time... I suppose it's the only time you've seen a sort of a language created out of thin air.
1: Well, I wouldn't say the only time. I think it's much more common than we thought it was. However, we didn't know where to look. So it's the first time that, that a language was documented in the process of being born.
2: Can we just start with sort of language? Gen- did languages get invented? Is that even a thing? I mean, I'm going to ask some really dumb questions here, Judy. So I apologize. So forgive me for asking dumb questions. Do languages get invented? I'm thinking of things like Esperanto. and.
1: Well, Esperanto can be invented. Pig Latin can be invented. There are languages that can be invented, but Mm. the things that we know as human languages are not invented. They're really a product of the human brain.
2: So we're born with a language instinct, I'm assuming, and then something triggers that when we're children and away we go, language happens.
1: We're born with, I call it a language-ready brain but we're Mm. born with these expectations that there's something out there that's important. Just like things are important to vision and things are important to other cognitive aspects of our lives. Language is important. So we're drawn to language. And once we find what we consider to be relevant language evidence, our brains have expectations of what that should look like. Mm. Even when there isn't a language in place, if you can find the things that trick the brain into thinking it's learning a language, it will do so, and then it will fill in the holes with its expectations. And so that's the interesting piece
2: of this research. So the inter- so well, let's. I mean, I'm thinking about. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the There's a, a one of my favorite films is the Enigma of Casper Hauser. Have you ever seen that film? I Brenner haven't. I've read
1: about Casper Hauser. Yeah, but I, uh,
2: that's about a, a child that was kind of had his childhood in complete isolation until he was uh, an adult and had no language, and then suddenly was released into the world. And I suppose it's a common sort of theme. I think that idea you kind of see throughout sort of literature, perhaps. But does that tell us something about how language happens? If children don't aren't shown language when they're kids, or aren't exposed to language, how, what, what kind of happens?
1: I think it absolutely does, actually, Much of the research that I'm focusing in on right now with a colleague, Dr. Romy Spitz, is looking at exactly that, looking at people who were born deaf, lived in families who could hear and didn't sign Mm. and were isolated from language until they got beyond what we call the critical or sensitive period for language. And we're kind of looking at what language is and how it develops by getting a picture of what language isn't Mm-hmm. and what it looks like when it hasn't mm-hmm. developed.
2: This is the deep rabbit hole. I don't want to go too far down mm-hmm. because this is basically your entire career and your entire work, and it's and it's really, really fascinating. I want to talk very specifically about sign language because obviously there are differences in sign language, like British sign language is different to American sign language. Were sign languages invented? Did they spontaneously happen in the way that we consider vocal languages to happen? Did they have the same sort of grammar? Did they? Why is British Sign Language different to American Sign Language? Did someone decide? And, and when do we first see sign languages appear?
1: It's hard. A lot of people think sign languages either they have two things: they think sign languages are universal, so mm. they're all going to be the same, or they think sign languages must have been invented by someone. Unless you think English was invented, or French, or Japanese sign language was also not invented. You know, language is not just tied to speech Hmm. it's what we call multimodal if you look at how it works it bubbles up in any modality that's there so if you can't hear uh, sign language will come through with your vision and your gesture but it will conform to all those universal properties of human languages and not do things that are different from them
2: I mean historically is there a sort of point where we first became aware of sign language then
1: I mean, you can go all the way back to Aristotle talks about sign language.
2: Everyone goes back to Aristotle. Anytime I do anything, it's like Aristotle or Plato, that's always the, or like Edison.
1: <laughs> or the good writers. But the yes, point exactly. is once whatever happened in our genetic changes that made humans ready for language, once that happened, then it was going to come out, whether it was in a sign language or a spoken language or tactile language. I work with deafblind people who communicate tactile. It's...
2: That's really amazing. I, I became aware of you because of the work you did in Nicaragua or do do in, in okay. Nicaragua. Can you just ex- just tell that story for our listeners? Because it's such an amazing story. So just explain what, why you're in Nicaragua. What was special about Nicaragua? The kind of origins of, that, of okay. that story?
1: Well, when I first went to Nicaragua, it wasn't like, hey, there's this great project there. I'm going to go study it. I went totally clueless. There were a group of linguists from Nicaragua who went down and they were doing bilingualism support and looking at language stuff. The Ministry of Education there contacted them and said, could you bring us somebody who's a specialist in, they said deafness, and probably wanted somebody who would come in and teach speech reading. But the linguists knew what they were asking for. And they came back and asked me, would you like to go down and do something with this? And I thought, yeah, Sure.
2: So when are we talking here, Judy, just for context, what kind of year?
1: The contact was 1985. I went down in 1986.
2: So this was so, a Contra-Rebels, uh, Soviet Cold War sort of time.
1: It was during the Contra War, yeah. Yeah. And then when I got there, I tried to look at... I went to first to a vocational school, which was all the older ones, sort of beyond critical period, mm. or at the verge. And, you know, everything, I thought, I'm just going to give back my degree because I'm not doing any, making any progress in learning this language because it was very erratic and irregular. But then, this was in just a couple of weeks, I picked up a lot there in communicating, but it's more like a pigeon. Then in a few weeks, I went to the elementary school, and I ran into some sort of 15, 16-year-olds. And I looked, and I was seeing something that was clearly to me as someone who knows many sign languages. Suddenly, this was a sign language. The, the, the rule book was there. I could see it. And, and the other piece that was really important for me was as I looked at those kids in the elementary school, the younger you went, the more fluent they were.
2: So this was a type of signing that they hadn't learned. They hadn't picked up. But it was something that spontaneously just arose right. between the children. They weren't getting it from adults, from teachers. There was no structure they, to it. They, would, they weren't these, these allowed just, to sign. They weren't allowed to sign.
1: They weren't allowed to sign in the classrooms in the school. They were allowed to communicate with each other, however, on the buses, on the playground, et cetera. But no, this came, it's a multi-step process that I think is important. The first thing that happened after the revolution was the schools reopened and there was a goal of a sixth grade education for everyone. So many more deaf people were coming back into the spring, brought into the schools Mm -hmm. And it's not that you need critical mass, but you needed to allow them interacting with each other. So these guys came from home and had a handful of gestures, something for eat, something for I'm I'm sick, very limited stuff. And in the home that works, if you're at home and you see what's happening and you point to it and you say one thing, right. People are going to understand you. And if you live in that environment, There's never going to be that press for you to have to learn to use a language to communicate. You can communicate that way. But Mm. now you throw all these guys together on a bus. You throw them all together in a playground. They want to talk to each other, right? And they don't share all their experiences. So when they point to something or they give a gesture like this, which is the Nicaraguan gesture for eat.
2: Hand to mouth. People
1: don't assume by Yeah, they don't assume by the context. That's a mango. I want to eat. I've already eaten. I'm hungry. Nobody's doing language for you. So then you start, I'll repeat something else or I'll copy somebody else's gesture. And I'll just keep. And so what happened was those kids got together and did the best they could to communicate, but it was a complete mishmash. Mm-hmm. But it was rhythmic and it was sequenced. And it had these characteristics, including the one which is we have an incredible desire to communicate with each other. It has these characteristics that say, hey, I'm language data. And for the older ones, that didn't matter. They just got better and better at trying to pigeon and, you know, talk back and forth, gesture to each other. But the younger kids, these kids were entering that school at age four. So the ones who were four or five, six, seven saw this. They went, oh, that's language. They're the ones that did the trick. They're the ones that learned it. And what mm-hmm. they produced was completely different from the communication system that these older kids had come up with. But in one swoop, you had a full-blown language.
2: This was a language that was completely invented. I I guess that's the wrong word. Emerge. Emerge, yeah. Emerge, that's exactly it. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about what did the language look like? I mean, did it start to evolve vocabulary and grammar? I mean, how did that all sort of emerge? There was, I mean,
1: there were gestures for things there were shared gestures that became signs for things, even in the sort of pre-communication. Mm-hmm. People would associate one gesture with another gesture, and or maybe even a bunch of them, but not in the way we associate things in a sentence. But when the young kids saw that bag of words, they did something different. So I'll give you, here, here's one example of something that was kind of interesting that happened. In Nicaragua, people point, people Pointed with their lips.
2: So like like kissing, like a pucking... Like a
1: pucking gesture pucker. and you'd point to a person on your left or a person on your right. Another thing they did, this is Nicaraguans in general, is wrinkle their noses. So if I walk up to you and I, I wrinkle my nose twice like this, it means kind of what's up, what's happening, right? So that nose wrinkle was being used, but then mm. suddenly there were signs, there were gestures that were being used, like a nose wrinkle with this... Uh, which is two fingers... Pointing to your chin. Uh, two fingers tapping the chin was K or what, okay? It's got an interesting history I can give you if you want. Or this one...
2: Well, no, c- can you give me an interesting history? Like, okay. So that's such a specific thing. So a wrinkled nose and two fingers to the chin means what? Means what? Why does that mean what? And who okay. decided that meant what? Okay,
1: this is the weird one. Here's one where every sometimes in a language, things come in that are just kind of arbitrary, right? So what mm-hmm. was happening was people were definitely using this nose wrinkle for signs. So all the question signs. So there was a sign, one finger that that went around with the nose wrinkle meant who. And, a, you know, another finger with the hand sort of moving in time meant when. And this one, I really did happen. I saw the accident of it happening. So one of the teachers at the vocational school went up to a kid and said, basically, what's the sign for KSSO." Es and she said on her mouth, K-S-S-O, es okay? And mm-hmm. this kid looked at her and had a little bit of lip reading at this point and thought she had said "queso" cheese. So instead of what is it, she thought she said cheese. So she gave her the sign for cheese. And then that teacher kept using cheese with the nose wrinkle from then on. Okay. And it suddenly it yeah. became the sign for what? But that's one of the sort of weird ones. But the main thing was, first you had just a nose wrinkle. Then you overlapped a nose wrinkle with a gesture. So you got two things. A hand, a gesture. hand gesture. So you get two things happening at the same time. That's what happened until the young guys gave birth to the language. When the young guys gave birth to the language, the nose wrinkle stayed, but now it's spread across the whole clause. So now they're giving you order, they're giving you agreement and space, they're giving you regularity. And when they ask a question, they're going to raise that nose wrinkle and spread it over many signs. You don't see that until you see the language itself.
2: Okay. That's so basically it's just one of those weird quirks. I have a friend's dog who, who when you say poor, mm-hmm. to give poor, it automatically lies down because it just it's just got confused. Yeah. So it's just kind of it's just kind of one of those things. But just tell me, just before I go on about language, I'm just really fascinated by these kids. Like Before you arrived, like before this language, what was life like for them, okay. for the well, deaf community in Nicaragua?
1: So either, you know, some were still at home and had nothing but a single gesture per event, and maybe 15 gestures that served their needs in the home. The ones who came into contact were enjoying the socialization with other people that approached the world visually, were thirsty to communicate. And so they were doing anything that they could to communicate with each other. There still wasn't anybody outside of their group who communicated with them. And they didn't have, at that point, they'd never shared language. They just had a whole shared group of strategies. You know, you got to remember... People often equate language and communication. Communication is a much bigger thing and you can do lots of stuff with it. And one of them is throw out any gestures, string them together, use the environment, point, whatever. That's what they were doing. And they were getting better and better and better at that, but it wasn't moving to that, to the same thing that we saw when the young kids basically took that as input and put out a full-blown language. So they weren't Giving you hierarchical structure and spreading of facial expressions to mark things like yes, no questions or who, what, where questions or relative clauses or conditionals. That yes, wasn't tenses,
2: there. Tenses and grammar and all that. Tenses kind of and
1: stuff. none of that was there until the young kids acquired it and went, okay, that must be tense. They took the raw materials of this communication yes. system and they put them in human order.
2: And just in terms of their behavior, as you were watching this, this language evolve, you must, I mean, you must have had an emotional connection with these kids because you're working with them all the time. Did they suddenly blossom? Did they become more confident? I'm just trying to picture what life was like when they're together, suddenly having this new tool, which is like, crikey, we didn't have language. We had basic yeah. communication, but suddenly we can express ourselves and express the world and think about well, things like time and the future and the past well, and the present and all these things.
1: You've got to put yourself in their situation, Right. Mm. Okay, so the older ones, they were communicating, they didn't have the kind of what we call meta cognitive skills to stand back and go, oh, cool, now we have a language. Now we can do time and space and all of this. No, what they were, they were incredibly enthusiastic and incredibly tied into communication, right? People would always want to come down and interview people, and say, so what's it like to have a new language? And they'd look at them and go, Yeah. Now <laughs> now, the generations later can look back at what was happening and talk about this. But at the time, what you just saw was this incredible fervor tied around communicating with each other. You know, you yes. went into the, little, the classrooms and you watched a teacher in a classroom who's now still trying to teach them to speak or write words or whatever. And you'll sit there for an hour and the person writes the word quadro, Q-U-A-D-R-O, square and draws a square on the board. I mean, sorry, cuatro, Q U A T R O, four, and then they do cuadrado, which is a square, and they spend an hour yeah. trying to get those two words across. And the teacher turns their back, right, and the kids are like negotiating with each other about borrowing lunch money or what they're going to eat or the latest what was the Bruce Lee video, which they were really into Bruce Lee at the time, which I saw thumb on the nose. But
2: wait, thumb on the nose means Bruce Lee.
1: That was their that was their gesture for Bruce <laughs> Lee. <laughs>
2: I'm more of a Jackie Chan. Right. I I don't know what
1: Jackie Chan is. But the point is, it was almost like in the classroom, it was this, Okay. you know, we'll put up with it, we'll do what we're doing. But they're really waiting for those moments to go out and just communicate with each other on the playground.
2: We'll be back after this short break. Millions dead, a higher proportion of civilian casualties than in the Second World War. America, Britain, Russia and China all involved in a conflict that technically remains active to this day. So why is the Korean War of 1950-53 called the Forgotten War? This July, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this unique conflict was all about. Join me, James Rogers, throughout July on the Warfare podcast from History Hit, as we remember the war the world forgot. I saw a really fascinating, I think it was a documentary that you were in, I think, I can't remember what it was, it was a, maybe 60 Minutes or something, and you met this, you went down, I can't remember where, you. somewhere in Nicaragua, and you met this woman, Irania her name yeah. was, who was known as the woman who does not speak. She was this yeah. wonderful example of somebody who was now a grown-up, I think she was in her mid-twenties, but had never been exposed to language or hadn't developed language. Right. And it was And it was a really emotional thing, because at that age you're not going to have that same facility, are you, of language? No, you're not. Just, just tell us a little bit about that case.
1: So so at that point, myself and Dr. Romy Spitz I worked with, we would go upriver six hours if we heard there was a deaf person there. So when 60 Minutes was coming, we heard there was a deaf person up in this area, Tortuguero. My husband ran up to say, is it OK if we bring this film crew and meet her? They was OK. So then we went six hours upriver to Tortuguero and met Irania, And they got to look at what we call first contact. First contact with someone who had no real language before. So we were looking at, you know, what does she have? She didn't have names for her kids. Her kids were this high, this high, and this high. That was it, which is fascinatingly interesting. Home sign systems and gesture systems they don't have name signs for each other, which is unbelievable. She was unable to even give you lots of vocabulary. But the amazing thing was she was very aware of what she couldn't do. I mean, she tried what she could communicate. You could Mm -hmm. see on her face when she knew what she couldn't do. But the frustrating part was she was 20 and there was nothing we were going to do. We could get better gesture into her, yes, which is something I really work with people on now. But we weren't going to get language into her no matter what we did because that door had closed.
2: That's really interesting. So language as part of our evolutionary makeup system, is only when you're very young. So from zero to what kind of age? And when does that door close? Eric
1: Lenneberg originally said age two to puberty. And then over time, and some of our research contributed to this, other research by a woman named Alyssa Newport contributed, that Mm. time has been pushed down. The door closes around puberty, but it opens at zero and starts to close around four or five. I mean, that early, Mm. and then it creaked shut.
2: And is that why the younger children, the Nicaraguan younger children, deaf children, they developed more complex grammar quicker than the older children?
1: They they were the key. They developed it. And what the older kids could do is, once they were part of the community and the older kids saw some of the grammar that they put into the mix, some of the older kids could learn that grammar. But it was the young kids that gave it to us.
2: I'm just it's such an amazing thing. And that's a, you as a linguist, why and seeing seeing a language evolve or emerge in real time. What did you think? Was it exciting? It must have been exciting for you because this doesn't happen every day. It's like, oh my God. I I guess within your field and the field of linguistics generally and and language theory, how important an example is this Nicaraguan case, seeing these young kids, seeing this language evolve? I
1: I think it's critical because all of us in the nativist realm, so the Chomsky followers, and that's not everybody in the field,
2: okay? (laughs) The Chomsky. This is Noam Chomsky, I'm guessing. Um,
1: But all of us believe that Language is a function of the human brain. And we believe that first language acquisition really happens in this way. It's just that there's a whole language out there around you as input data. But we believe the same thing. The Nicaraguan case is important because it's the emergence of language from non-language. So it shows you that none of that external stuff other than the desire to communicate, seeing yeah. some kind of communication happen is enough to get that little brain going. And you asked me what it felt like. Well, how would you feel if someone asked you to participate when they gave birth to a child? That's what it feels like.
2: It was that fundamental.
1: was a very intimate, very generous and sharing thing to allow me to bop around there, interact, be there while they were giving birth to a child.
2: That's fascinating. Actually, you know, while while you're just talking about movies, Nine to Five and The Enigma of Kasper Hauser. Both of which you have to watch, listeners. Casper Hauser specifically, because it's exactly this is what the film is about. Did you watch that sci-fi film came out a few years ago called Arrival? No. Talking of first... Oh my God, you've got to watch it. So the aliens land, or the aliens come down and no one can speak alien, so they have to get... Basically, Judy, they get mm. the linguistic expert to talk to the aliens. And, of course, they talk in sign language. They oh, okay. draw kind of weird circles. And she has to crack the – it's this first contact okay. thing. That was my first question on my notes. I'm like, I bet she's seen Arrival and has views on it.
1: But the difference is the aliens had a language, right? And the people on Earth had language. They
2: did. So Correct. that's I – and mean, that's a really yes. –
1: it's an important situation. And it's a situation in which languages pre and emerge. Okay? But it's a, just that tad – that tad
2: difference. Yeah. This is, this is a, this is a podcast about mm-hmm. inventions. And of course, as you've beautifully described, languages aren't invented. They emerge and we're born with an innate language ability. Is there a point in the human evolution where we went from as a species, we went from no language to, I mean, I remember doing a piece many, many years ago about the, the Fox P2 mm-hmm. gene and, and things like that. So like, where where are we in the evolutionary tree that suddenly we be, the language became a thing rather than kind of grunting?
1: There's a lot of work on that now. And it, sometimes people link complex tool development and material culture development with language. But mm-hmm. I think they go about 160,000 years ago. The assumption okay. is that there was a mutation, could have been one mutation or a set of co-occurring mutations that were ready to happen. But there was a mutation that made the sort of hominid group have the capacity for language. There was also a kind of split even after that language. I I went to a talk about this a week ago, a split in two groups that had languages. So you got very distinct branches of language. But the point was at some stage, something happened. And what people think it is, is actually the ability to associate two things with each other And then treat those as a single whole and associate those with another thing. The ability to do that, that one tiny, teeny, tiny little cognitive thing is argued to be the thing that kind of triggered what we have as language.
2: Right. Do you mean like a kind of theory of mind? It's
1: like a a theory of hierarchical thinking the ability to, to not just associate two things, but or relate them in, in a hierarchy. Right. That ha- At some point, a gene allowed us to do that. And once it did, there were all kinds of repercussions of that that supported that evolutionary development. And
2: There you go. And presumably combined with a, a physiological thing as well. I mean, there must be something to do with our physical makeup that allows us allows us to articulate words.
1: Nothing and... happened, but it's kind of interesting what it was. So, physiologically, when I studied speech, right, what we learned was there wasn't a single aspect of the speech mechanism that wasn't used for another purpose. So, the glottis that does certain things with it is designed to let you sort of close it to lift heavy items. You know, everything has a piece, and facial expression too. So, what's unique about language is the physical was already there. The language recruited the ability to make that physical thing not automatic. So when you get upset, if you cry or you're mad or you're happy, there are gestures on your face that are similar to gestures across the world. Paul Ekman and Frieza, they've studied this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's the point at which when you look at a sign language, you get things like nose wrinkles and facial expressions that have now been recruited for a grammatical purpose they're no longer involuntary. So when I sign a relative clause in American Sign Language, I sign a cheek tensing that makes me look like I'm disgusted. If I'm signing happy, I've got a a smile. But if I'm signing a yes-no question, I look like I'm surprised. WH question, I furrow my brows, I look like I'm angry. It's not completely the same facial expressions, but we're recruiting Mm -hmm. those and now using them Non-voluntarily, we're using them as part of a language system. And I think it's when speech got recruited in that way, facial expressions got recruited in that way, they were already there. We, Like I said, language is multimodal. If you can't see, you'll use tactile. If you can't hear, you'll use uh, sign language. If you speak, you're probably going to use speech because you can use your hands for other things. But the point is, it's not the mechanism. Nothing of that changed. It was just, hey, I got this really cool yeah. tool. I can do things hierarchically. Let me let me see what I can do with that for communication. I mean, it's not that way, but but the point is that it goes with the system that's already there.
2: Um, I can't let you go without. Will you teach us some Nicaraguan sign language, please? So we'll have to describe what we're doing. So teach. Can you show me something? I'm
1: um, sure.
2: A kiss. So. F- Which is. Yeah. So, index finger over your thumb, over the first knuckle of your thumb, with right. a clenched fist.
1: And that's almost like a kiss at the mouth and uh, your thumb and your index finger coming over it and pulling away from the mouth. What does that mean? That's me gusta. I like me that. Me gusta. I like
2: it. Mm-hmm. va bene. Me gusta. Me gusta, me gusta. Mm. excellent. Right. Brilliant.
1: And then the other, this, but no me gusta is like this. It's a flat hand that kind of moves toward your, the center of your torso and, the, and you would shake your head at the same time. No me gusta. Okay,
2: here's a test for you. How do you do anti-disestablishmentarianism?
1: In Nicaraguan
2: Sign Language? hmm
1: You'd have to spell it.
2: <laughs> hey, listen, Judy, I'll let you go. It's been fascinating. I think your story's amazing. Basically, they made a movie about you called Arrival, and if you haven't seen it, you've got to go, and that's your homework, go and watch yeah. Arrival, and, and you'll well, go, if- oh, my God, they've stolen my story.
1: If you want to see more of like these people without language, watch the movie by Adam um, Adam Isenson. It's called Una Vida Sin Palabras, A Life Without Words. Ah, did a movie on one of the language isolates. Yes, um, and that's a you know wonderful example of the ones that are alone. Interesting,
2: actually, one more movie as well. There's a, there is a Her- another Herzog movie, not Kasper Hauser, and I forget what it's called about um, blind deaf people of of which you oh. um crikey what the hell is it called i can't remember now but anyway you could people, there are no, there invariant. are a number there are a number of those in our fascinating tactile, tactile, tactile language yeah 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 there you go listeners you got a lot of homework a lot of movies to watch on the subject it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating subject Hey, Judy, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for taking the time out. Thank you. Your career is amazing. Your subject is utterly fascinating. I'm glad we managed to kind of shoehorn it into a podcast all about invention because yeah. normally we do like the steam engine, but actually, this is, right. <laughs> this is uh, and everyone goes, yeah, Thomas Edison, he invented it. He didn't invent this, but you know what I mean? Or like, oh, Aristotle. Um, Judy, an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for joining me.
1: Okay, thank you. Bye bye.
2: Okay, that's it. Thank you, Judy, for that. If you were keeping count of how many films that we mentioned, the answer is five. Enigma of Kaspar Hauser, 9 to 5, Arrival, A Life Without Words, and then the Herzog movie, I couldn't remember at the time, was Land of Silence of Darkness. All really, really interesting films, so if you're interested in, in, in this concept and this idea, there's a little film-watching homework list for you. Next time, a completely different subject. I'm going to be talking about something that's made spending money much easier than ever. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? It's the invention of contactless payment. Look forward to your company for that Selling a little or a lot?
0: Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.
2: While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive